Hi, I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And I'm Father Gregory Pine. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our prayer lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Spiritual reading can be challenging for many Catholics, so this podcast is here to help. Each season, we'll read through a great work, unpack its timeless wisdom, and encourage you with practical tips for the pursuit of holiness. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we're reading Ascension's edition of Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. To get your copy of the book and download the reading plan for this season, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text intro to 33777. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app. This is day 24. Today we'll be reading part 3, Certain Counsels for the Practice of the Virtues, chapters 23, pages 279 through 285 in the Ascension edition of this book. Before we get into the reading, let's take a quick look at what we will be covering today. In this chapter, St. Francis has, I guess, finished talking about friendships, at least for now. He returns to the theme of mortification and focuses particularly on external mortifications. We talked about mortifications already earlier in the book, and like before, we shouldn't be afraid of these practices. Remember that mortification is the tool of purification. The devout life requires us to be freed from sin and vices and worldly attachments, and that's all we mean when we're talking about purification, to be rid of these. Mortifications are the practices we adopt to accomplish this in our lives, by God's grace. Here, St. Francis talks about various forms of external mortification, uh, especially fasting and sleeping, why they're good, how to adopt them, how to live them well, and use them in our pursuit of the devout life. Before we get into the reading, let's say a quick prayer. Grant us grace, O merciful God, to desire ardently all that is pleasing to Thee, to examine it prudently, to acknowledge it truthfully, and to accomplish it perfectly, for the praise and glory of Thy name. Amen. Chapter 23 On Practices of External Mortification Those who discuss agriculture and rural affairs assure us that if someone writes any word on a healthy almond and encloses it again in the shell, folding and closing it properly, then planting it, all the fruit of the tree that grows from it will have the same word engraved on it as well. For my part, Philothea, I have never been able to approve of the method of those who, to reform a man, begin with his exterior, such as his gestures, dress, or hair. On the contrary, I believe we ought to begin with his interior. Return to me, said God, with all your heart. My son, give me your heart. Yes, since the heart is the source of our actions, they will be like our heart. The divine spouse inviting the soul says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Yes, how true. For whoever has Jesus Christ in his heart will soon have him in all his external deeds. Therefore, my dear Philothea, I have desired above all else to engrave upon your heart this holy and sacred motto, May Jesus live. Live in assurance thus that your life, which proceeds from the heart as an almond tree from its seed, will bring forth all its deeds, which are its fruits, written and engraved with the same words of salvation. And likewise, be sure that just as this sweet Jesus lives within your heart, so too will he live in all your deeds, in your eyes, in your mouth, in your hands, and even in the hair on your head. Thus, you will be able to say with St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In a word, 
He who has conquered the heart of a man has conquered the whole man. But the heart itself, which must be our starting place, nonetheless must be instructed how it ought to frame its outward behavior, so that men may behold not only holy devotion therein, but also great wisdom and discretion. To this end, I will here briefly give you some counsels. If you are able to endure fasting, you would do well to fast some days besides those which are commanded by the church. For besides the usual effects of fasting, namely to elevate the spirit, to keep the flesh in subjection, and to facilitate the exercise of virtue, it is a great means of restraining gluttony and keeping the sensual appetite and body subject to the law of the spirit. And even though we do not fast much, nonetheless, the enemy fears us when he knows that we know how to fast. Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays are the days on which the ancient Christians most exercised abstinence. Choose then some one of these fast days to fast on, as far as your devotion and the discretion of your director shall advise you. I would gladly say to you, as St. Jerome said to the good Lady Leta, long and immoderate fasts displease me much, especially in those that are yet of tender age. I have learned by experience that the young ass, when wearied in a journey, turns aside from the path. In other words, young people experiencing infirmity through excessive fasting easily turn to delicacies. The deer cannot run well in two seasons of the year, when they are too fat and when they are too lean. We are highly exposed to temptations both when our body is too pampered and when it is too weakened, for the first makes it idle with ease and the other desperate in affliction. And just as we cannot bear it when it is too fat, so too it cannot bear us when it is too lean. By failing to observe such moderation, the use of fasting, discipline, hair shirts, and other austerities, the best years of many have been rendered unprofitable in the service of charity, as they were for St. Bernard, who repented that he had been overzealous in his youthful austerity. And the more they ill-treated their bodies in the beginning, the more did they need to indulge them at the end. Would it not have been better for them to have mortified their bodies moderately in proportion to the duties and labors fitting to their particular station in life? Along with fasting, labor serves to mortify and subdue the flesh. If the labor you undertake is necessary for you or useful for the glory of God, I had rather you would suffer the pain of labor than of fasting. This is the sense of the church as well, since on account of such labors as contribute to the service of God and our neighbor, she discharges those who do them even from the fasts that are commanded. One finds fasting difficult, another serving the sick or visiting prisoners or hearing confessions or preaching or praying and performing such exercises. These latter kinds of pain are more valuable than the former, for besides the pain by which they subdue the body equally well, they also produce fruits that are much more desirable. Therefore, generally speaking, it is better to preserve our bodily strength more than may be necessary than to weaken it too much, for we may always diminish it when we will, but we cannot always repair it at will. It seems to me that we should hold in great reverence the word said by our Savior and Redeemer Jesus Christ to his disciples. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. It is, in my opinion, a greater virtue to eat without choice that which is laid before you and in the same order as it has been presented, whether it be agreeable to your taste or not, than always to choose the worst. For although this latter way of living seems more austere, yet the former has, notwithstanding, more resignation, since by it we renounce not only our own taste but even our own choice. 
And it is no small mortification to accommodate one's taste to whatsoever kind of food, and kept it in all circumstances. Besides, this kind of mortification is performed without being noticed by others, gives no trouble to anyone, and is especially adapted to social life. To set one kind of meat aside and take another, to pick and taste every dish, to think nothing properly cooked or sufficiently plain, to make a fuss over every morsel bears witness to an overly delicate heart, indeed one that cares too much about dishes and platters. I think it more highly for St. Bernard for once unconsciously drinking oil by accident, thinking it water or wine, than if he had drunk wormwood water on purpose, for in the former case we have a plain sign that he was not even thinking about what he was drinking. Now, here, in this indifference regarding what we eat and drink, we see the perfection of the practice of the sacred rule, eat what is set before you. I make exception, however, for such food that would be harmful to your health, or even troublesome for the mind, such as food that is hot, highly seasoned, or that which might cause indigestion. Likewise, too, I make exception for certain occasions when nature needs to be revitalized so that you might take up some labor for the glory of God. Continual and moderate temperance is preferable to harsh abstinence practiced fitfully alongside great relaxations. The discipline has a marvelous power for arousing the taste for devotion so long as it is used in moderation. The use of the hair shirt powerfully constrains the body, but the use of it is not ordinarily proper for either married men or those who have delicate makeups, nor for those who already suffer other great pains. However, yes, it can be used on days that are set aside in particular for penance, doing so with guidance from a prudent confessor. Each person must sleep as his physical makeup requires, taking as much as needed for him to spend the day profitably. And because Holy Scripture in so many places, the examples of the saints and natural reasons, as well as all strenuously recommended the morning hours as the best and most fruitful part of our days, and as our Lord himself is named the Orient, the Rising Sun, and Our Lady the Day Star, I think it a point of virtue to take care to go to rest early in the evening so that we may be able to wake and rise early in the morning. Certainly, that time of day is the most beneficial, the most agreeable, and the least subject to disturbance. The very birds invite us to awake and praise God. Thus, early rising is equally of use for health and holiness. Balaam, sitting upon his donkey, went to King Balak. However, because his intentions were not upright, an angel waited for him in the way with a sword in hand to kill him. The donkey, seeing the angel, stopped uncontrollably three times. Therefore Balaam beat her cruelly with his staff to make her go until on the third beating the beast fell down under Balaam by an extraordinary miracle, spoke to him, asking, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Immediately Balaam's eyes were opened and he saw the angel who said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have slain you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Thus, my dear Philothea, behold that Balaam is the cause of the evil, yet he strikes and beats his poor donkey, which could not prevent it. This is often the case for us too. For example, this woman sees her husband or sick child and immediately begins to fast, put on a haircloth shirt, and takes the discipline in hand, as David too did on a similar occasion. Alas, my friend, you beat the poor donkey and afflict your body, but it cannot remedy the evil, nor is it on that account that God's sword is drawn against you. Instead, amend your heart, which has idolized this husband and has permitted a thousand vices in this child. 
destining him to pride, vanity, and ambition. Or again, a man perceives himself frequently to shamefully relapse into the sin of unchastity. Inward remorse comes, sword in hand against his conscience, to pierce it through with a holy fear, and immediately his heart coming to itself, he says, Ah, wicked flesh, ah, treacherous body, you have betrayed me. Immediately he lays great blows on his flesh with immoderate fasting, excessive disciplining, and intolerable hair shirts. O poor soul, if your flesh could speak, as did Balaam's donkey, she would say to you, Why, O wretch, are you striking me? It is against you, O my soul, that God arms his vengeance. You are the criminal. Why do you lead me into wicked company? Why do you make use of my eyes, hands, and lips in wantonness? Why do you trouble me with impure thoughts? Cherish good thoughts, and I shall have no evil motions. Keep company with the modest, and I shall not be provoked to lust. You, alas, are the one who throws me into the fire, and yet you think that I would not burn therein. You breathe smoke into my eyes, and yet you are distressed that they are inflamed. And God certainly says to you in these cases, beat, break, rend, and crush your hearts primarily, for it is against them that my anger is roused. Just as an itch is cured not so much by washing or bathing the body as by purifying our blood and refreshing the liver, so too in order to cure our vices, it may be good that we mortify the flesh, but what is above all needed is that we purify our affections and renew our hearts. However, as a universal rule, only undertake bodily austerities with the advice of your spiritual director. So in this section, we see a few themes um, continue to emerge on this topic of mortification, of purification, of ridding uh, those sort of vices, temptations, sins from our lives so as to pursue Christ more readily, to strive after a life of holiness more holy, I guess. Uh, and, and two stand out, fasting and sleep, at least in, in St. Francis's explanations here in this chapter. So let's, before we talk about those specific forms of mortification, I guess let's talk about or review a little bit mortification in general, and in this case, external mortifications. I, and I think the question of, of like why and how does this correspond, you know, doing these physical things, how does that correspond to the spiritual life? So I, I Father Gregory... Do you have some thoughts on those things, some musings on mortifications? That could be a good book, musings on mortifications. <laughs> um, short of a book, I can I can maybe speak on the theme for somewhere between 50 and, you know, 70 seconds. Um, but we have, you know, lots of desires. So you can think about those most basic desires, like the desires to, I don't know, keep on existing or like the desires for, you know, food and drink, which are an expression of that or the desires for sexual intercourse and family life, or the desires for living in society and knowing the truth about God, etc. So, you know, different things that we pursue in different ranks of importance. Uh, but sometimes we just get lost in the lower desires, or we get um, like swallowed up by them almost as if they're, they're too loud, or they're too shiny, or they're too delicious to turn away from. And then when we're immersed in them or when we're kind of like lost in them, then we just don't take the time or we don't make the space to pursue those higher things. So mortification, which just comes from the words for, you know, to put to death, it kind of puts to death lower desires in a certain sense so that there is again space to pursue those higher things, to give expression to those higher desires. So we kind of rein in the desire, especially for food, for drink, for sexual intercourse, 
so that those higher, more noble pursuits for God and, you know, the good life can take more firm hold of us so that we might get lost in them rather than lost in the lower things. So is that to say that we shouldn't, you know, eat or drink or have sexual intercourse in the context of family life? No, but it is to say that those aren't the be all and end all and that we shouldn't define our lives by the exercise of those desires. Rather, we should place those desires within a kind of hierarchy or framework so that what is most important is ultimately affirmed and then what is less important assumes its proper place. So that'd be, maybe that was more than 70 seconds. My apologize. I typically go over. <laughs> That's right. You're forgiven. No worries. We'll work on, on purifying your time sensitivity as we go uh what i think that's that what you were saying at the end is really the key and extremely important that that the mortifications and purifications certainly are about ridding sin from our lives but it's not about ridding or getting rid of what is human in us but about putting that in a proper order in a proper context so as father gregory was explaining like a desire for I don't know, like a steak and like a glass of wine or a beer and a burger or whatever ought not supersede our desire for God. And that might be a silly example, but we can think of ways that that happens in our lives, even just with respect to trying to find time to pray or to pursue the things of the devout life. Like it's a lot easier to be consumed by other things than it is by prayer generally, unless we, you know, we've built that habit of prayer over time. And this is what St. Francis and our reading of this book together is is aimed at of, of enkindling and beginning those habits of prayer. Um, but those can only be introduced as a way of living with Christ if we make room for that. And that's what this mortification business is about, to put to death those um, desires in our lives that at root aren't necessarily evil, like our desire for food, drink, and sex, as Father Gregory was saying, are not evil things, but they, when they become the sort of idol or the thing that we chase primarily— then, you know, that becomes problematic. So this is all about a proper sort of ordering of who we are as as men and women and a less a sort of like suppression of who we are as men and women. And though I think that suppression thing, sometimes that's easy to think that like in order to be holy, I have to suppress these things about me. Well, no, in order to be holy, God desires to perfect these things in us. And we have to participate in that school of perfection. And this is one way by which we do that. So fasting. Let's talk about fasting. Both of these, actually, this whole chapter gives me anxiety because I like to eat and I'm hungry all the time and I like to sleep and I never get enough sleep. And I imagine that's the case for a lot of the people listening right now. So fasting and sleep are just like, mm, food and sleep are, are things that I want. So fasting and not sleeping or whatever are things that terrify me. So Let's talk, let's talk about why and how. So why these external mortifications? Like what are the, what is this supposed to accomplish in our lives particularly? Like why is fasting so uh, what prominent in like the Christian tradition through the centuries? Yeah. Well, when you think about it, those most basic instinctual drives that we have as human beings, like food and drink, which ensures that we live till tomorrow and the next day, sexual intercourse, which ensures that the species lives till the next day, um, like shelter and sleep and warmth and, you know, just those most basic things towards which we are inclined. They have such a hold on us because if we think that we don't have access to them, our mind immediately goes to death. You know, it's just like, if I don't have these things, I'm going to die. I can't possibly live another day without them. I'm going to explode at the mere thought that I might have to limit my intake. You know, it's just, we go straight to catastrophic possibilities because they're so instinctual. So, I mean, we shouldn't be scandalized by that. Uh, we shouldn't be too terribly surprised by the fact 
that our fallen nature rebels against any discipline or, you know, like any stricture that's placed upon it because it just wants access to the things which it knows is going to secure its life in the future. But for the reasons that we've described, it's necessary to rein those desires in or to teach those desires or to discipline those desires, however we want to describe it, right? And um, fasting is a simple way by which to do so because, you know, like a lot of us, you know, you eat breakfast and then around about 1030 in the morning, you start to have the thoughts of lunch. And then you're like, if I don't have lunch now, I'm going to die. And then maybe you've disciplined yourself to the point where you don't eat until like noon or one, but then maybe you, you go for a snack regardless, you know, like we're, we're just used to being comfortable. We're used to being sated. Um, we're used to not having, you know, to struggle too terribly much to, you know, like satisfy whatever, whatever need um, we, we currently feel or we currently suffer. Um, but when we fast, we push back against that a little bit and we say, no, I'm, I'm willing to suffer a little bit of discomfort. I'm willing to speak back to that voice inside my head, which says, without this, you will die and say, no, no, settle down, right? Because you need our, we need our whole nature to settle down so that we can be at peace, so that we can have a greater self-possession in the presence of the Lord, so that we can ultimately give of ourselves. Because if we're constantly just, you know, playing host to all of these clamorous desires, these shouting desires, then we're just their slave, right? And we're not a good, you know, we're not ultimately a good master of them. We are just their slave. So I think that's the basic idea which informs fasting. It's just kind of, whoop, you know, speak some reason back into an appetite which can quickly become unreasonable. Yeah, and here the training thing or the discipline thing is is a good way to approach it and to think about it in terms of this, like if every time there's a sort of desire for food, we we live in such a way that we have to respond and feed, then we, we're training ourselves to do that with other desires that creep up, with other things that creep up, that that we just respond immediately to satisfy. And that that's not a good way to live. As Father Gregory said, we don't want to be slaves to those things in our lives. We, our reason, our will, we as human beings, as men and women, want to be able to you know, be masters of our of our bodies, of our desires. And again, that's not a suppression of them. It's just a, a, a proper ordering. So fasting, whether that's taking a day a week to have, you know, not snack between meals or to abstain from having a meal, um, observing, abstaining from meat on Fridays, you know, which is a classic Catholic um, practice of abstinence. Um, whatever it might be, following the church's guide here is super helpful and important. So to fast more during the penitential seasons of Advent and Lent, and less so perhaps during Easter season, you know, the Christmas season, these sort of things. It doesn't have to be, the, sometimes the question is like, well, where do I start? Well, these things don't have to be massive undertakings to begin. We, again, like with prayer, we have to develop the habits of these disciplines. We can't just say, well, I'm going to only have one meal a day for the rest of my life, but I've been eating four and a half for the last 35 years. It's like, not a chance, buddy. Like, that's not going to happen. Um, so we have to start in small steps so as to begin to train, to practice. Often hear the analogy of an athlete or like a musician is used. You know, a marathon runner doesn't go out from not running to racing a marathon the next day. You know, there's a period of training of buildup. So too with a musician, we have to, you know, you start by learning to read music, playing scales, you know, before you take on some sort of massive musical undertaking. So, so too here to take on these little things to, to train, to discipline, to, uh, I don't remember you said to chill out, but sort of like to say like, hold on, like, you know, these desires don't get the final say. They don't dictate my life. And in fact, Christ does. So, you know, let's, let's reroute the sort of um, navigation system here. I think the, the same principles apply to sleep. And 
sleep is a, I found it a little interesting because we usually don't think of sleep and fasting together, but St. Francis wants us to think of those together, so we will. But I think too here, the 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 question of, it's a balance, right? Because St. Francis is not saying don't sleep. He's saying get the appropriate sleep that you need so as to live your life well and to like perform your duties well. So that's not like, we ought not overindulge, but we also ought to be appropriate human beings and get enough sleep that, that we're not like, going to hear the alarm and, you know, want to like never see the light of day again type thing. So I think the same principles apply here. I don't know if you have thoughts, further thoughts on, on sleep or that sort of thing, but generally we, we would use the same principles for any sort of mortification. Yeah. I think the sleep is an interesting test case because if you don't sleep too terribly much, it often reveals the fact that you prefer other things to sleeping or that you're anxious. And so if you're going to get the appropriate amount of sleep, it's going to demand of you that you fast from other things. Um, like from your phone or from your computer after a certain time or from certain forms of entertainment, which might be visually rich, but kind of disturbing. Uh, or it might mean fasting from certain forms of music, which recur throughout the course of the night and keep you up or make it hard to stay asleep. Um, so it's going, if you know, if you're, if you're dedicated to getting a good night's sleep, however many hours that is for you, it will often mean taking a, a harder line on other goods, albeit lower goods, which can potentially derail that effort. So it's a fascinating little proving ground there for the penitential life. Yeah. So as we as we wrap up our thoughts and reflections on on this chapter, you know, recognize that St. Francis is again offering another way or an additional way to consider how it is that you might be able to grow in your life of devotion um, by rooting out those things that might distract you from the pursuit of the devout life, from from chasing after Christ. So as we've said before, as we've said on this episode, the you know thoughts of mortification, of penances, of purification ought not be things to intimidate, but ought to be, you know, approached with a sense of prudence, you know, approached with a way of, of growing into these habits and into these practices, but ultimately all oriented at coming to know Christ better and coming to be a better and more devout disciple. So that's what we have for you today. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to hear some of our other conversations on different subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast, Godsplaining. There you will find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Thank you.